problems popped up. Problems that caused strife and division in the church. And it's always a sad thing when the body of Christ becomes divided. Paul talked about the different, the different issues of the ministry. The pressures that he faced. All the different experiences and problems that he had to deal with. Plus the care of all the churches. And he had the, to deal with the, the concerns that he had with the churches every day. Just the needs. So when he heard about the divisions in the church in Corinth, those divisions weighed heavy on his heart. And there were quite a few problems that he had to deal with. There was the abuse of the gifts of the Spirit that he'll deal with in chapter 12 and 14. There was a problem with the teaching about the resurrection and division over the resurrection in chapter 15. These are signs of carnality. The divisions were because of their carnality. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, 3, For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like men, mere men? There was also an abuse of the Lord's Supper, and he deals with that. But right now, in chapter 8, he deals with the divisions over Christian liberty. Things that, the, the things that Christians are free to do. And we have a tremendous liberty. And many times we take, we, we, we use that liberty. And it's, you know, I, I think we use it a lot of times without really thinking about what it is we're going to do. Or what it is, what it is we're going to say. Because it's our right. We can do it. But the underlying issue is what I say, though I have the right to say it, how's it going to affect the other person? Especially if they're a Christian. How's it going to affect them? Or the things that I do, how's it going to affect them? Though we have these liberties in Christ, remember, all liberties have limits. They have limits. You know, we have the right to drive, but not on the curbs. (laughs) Not at 100 miles an hour, though we see that in the freeway. People do a lot of things that they don't have the, the right to do, though they have the right to drive. They don't, I should say they, they're limited to, to the laws of the land. They're limited to, to the speed limits and to you know, the, the turns they can make and the, you know, the things they can do with a vehicle. We have the right to drive, but those rights are limited. And it's the same with everything else in our life. How is it going to affect other people? So, you know, the Lord, the Lord has, hasn't told us in the Bible everything that's right or wrong. He doesn't tell us if going to the movies is wrong. Of course, they didn't have movies in those days, so we can see why. But 
He doesn't tell us if dancing is wrong. There are a lot of things Christians wonder about whether they're right or wrong to do as a Christian. And there are some Christians who believe that it's all right to go to the movies. There's others who say it's not okay. Some believe it's okay to smoke. Others say it's a sin. You know, some think it's okay to drink. Some think it's not. And there's an endless list of questions of what's right, what's wrong, what can I do, what, can I, what can't I do. Now, for some people, the questions are innocent. Because they're new in the Lord. They're babes. They're growing in Christ. And, and, and they want to... They want to walk as close to heaven as they can. They want to do what's right in the Lord. But for others, the questions as to what can I do are, you know, to find out how close can I live like the world and not go to hell? How close to the edge of hell can I walk? And not worry about going there. So there are some who feel they have the freedom to do certain things where others feel convictions against it. And that's always the way it's been. And that that creates a division. So how do I deal with those things? How do we react to each other? How are we to react toward each other? When we have these strong differences of opinion of what I, as a Christian, can do and can't do or shouldn't do. So someone had written to Paul and told him of the problems. And so Paul is trying to bring a balance to the church there in Corinth. And that's where we're at right now in our study in in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're now in the part of the letter that deals with a Christian's liberty. Chapter 8 deals with the problem of whether or not a believer should eat meat offered to idols and the liberty that a Christian should uh, should have in this particular area. Now, this particular problem does not have any effect on us in the sense of offering meat to idols. But the principle does. And we'll see how it works out. The subject of what and what not to eat is just... As just as controversial as marriage and divorce is. Food and drink is a controversial subject with a lot of people. Food and drink is usually an important part of the doctrine of a lot of the cults and, and religions. And a lot of them have strict rules about what to eat and what not to eat. In the Old Testament, God gave Israel certain restrictions about eating meat. An acceptable animal to, animal to eat had a parted hoof and it chewed the cud. Now, that left out pork chops. You couldn't eat any pig. That was off the menu. There were also certain birds and certain fish that, you weren't, that, that they weren't allowed to eat, according to Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And the interesting thing about the cults that put so much emphasis on the Old Testament uh, dietary regulations is that they're so ignorant of the actual details. And when I use that word ignorant again i'm not meaning that in a derogatory way i'm using it as what it means that they're just totally unaware of the actual details. and why is that why did god give a special menu to israel well he makes it very clear in deuteronomy 14 1 through 3 listen to what he said you are the children of the lord your god for you are a holy people to the lord your god 
And the Lord, he has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He says, you shall not eat any detestable thing. Another reason is that the diet is important for health. God gave Israel certain foods that were good for them. And even doctors today prescribe certain foods that exclude. So I'm sorry, they, they, they prescribe certain diets that exclude certain foods. The Bible gives warnings and is very specific about a lot of things that are wrong for us to do. Paul here gives a great guideline that we need to follow. First, we need a little background about the customs in the city of Corinth in Paul's day. And if you don't understand the background, you will miss the point, the whole point of what Paul's making here, of what's happening here. So here's the background. The best place to eat good meat in Corinth wasn't at the finest steakhouse in town. The best place to get good meat was in the meat market that was run by the temple. In Corinth, the people would bring their animals to sacrifice as an offering to idols. So they'd they'd bring the best animals that they had. They bring it, they they, they bring it to their idols, you know, whoever worshiped the idols. They'd bring that sacrifice and make an offer it to their idols. They would bring the best animals that they had. So the meat would be offered to an idol. Now it didn't stay there very long because they believed that the spirit of the idol ate the spirit of the animal. So the meat remained. And then that finished the meal for the idol. Then they would take the meat that was offered to the idol to the meat market there at the temple where the meat was sold. So if you wanted to buy the best cuts of meat in Corinth, all you had to do is go to one of those temple markets, those meat markets at the temple, to get meat that had been offered to an idol or to idols. Now, here's where the problem lies. Some of the Christians in Corinth were offended by this procedure. So they were asking Paul about it. For example, let's say a family gets invited to dinner with another Christian family. And they would be served this, this, this t- tender, juicy piece of meat. And, you know, the families are talking about, you know, the daily things and what's going on. And, you know, just, just casual talk like as you would at dinner. And maybe the, the, the visiting husband says, man, this is a delicious piece of meat. Where did you get it? And the lady of the house would say, hey, well, you know, I got it at the temple meat market. And then the husband would look at the wife and she looked at the husband and go, uh-oh, you know. This was offered to an idol. I can't eat this meat. This would offend the couple who had felt that it was wrong to eat anything that had been offered to idols. While the, while the host couple didn't think anything of it. So this is the question that Paul discusses here in chapter 8. Should a Christian eat meat that had been offered to idols? Some Christians had no problem with it. Others did. This was a real problem to the people in Corinth because many of them, you see, they had come out of idolatry. And and they were now Christians. And they thought it was now a compromise with idolatry if they ate meat that was offered to an idol. But others in the church felt it wasn't a problem. What difference does it make? So now we want to hear what Paul has to say as He discusses this problem. 
So let's begin now in chapter 8 with verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. So Paul says, okay, well, let's talk now about food that's sacrificed to idols. You think that everyone should agree with your perfect knowledge. In other words, everybody should agree with your opinion because you know the right thing to do. Paul says, well, while knowledge may uh, may make us feel important, he says, it's love that really builds up the church. And anyone who claims to know all the answers, they don't really know very much at all. Here's the key. Love for God and love for others should determine what we do and how we behave. Love for God and love for others should determine what we do and how we behave. Paul says knowledge puffs up. You know, it, it, it gives you a big head. It, it makes you arrogant. Oh, you know, I know it all. And it tends to make us harsh when we deal with others. That's their problem. I'm free in Christ. I can eat this. And you know, if you've got a problem, that's, you know, that's something you need to deal with. Kind of the attitude we get when we get arrogant and think we know it all. It's a danger with a lot of people who feel they know they, they, they know a lot. When in reality, Paul says, you really don't know very much. In other words, you really don't know what's important. You don't know what you need to know. You know, if my eating offends you, too bad. Again, that's your problem. I'm free in Christ. And some Christians may know what's the right thing to do, but they don't care because they want to do what praises them or pleases them. Hey, you know what? It may, it may bother you, but you know, I, I, like, the, I like doing this and, and I'm going to do it because I have the freedom to do it. Paul reminds them that knowledge makes a person arrogant. And those believers were mature in, in knowledge, but they weren't mature in love. The Bible says that love edifies. In other words, it, it enlightens, it builds up, it strengthens others. And, and here's the key. Love does what's best for the other person. Love does what's best for the other person. And they didn't have the edification. They didn't have that enlightenment. Those who were puffed up, those who were knowledgeable. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love does not seek its own. Love does not seek its own. It does what's best for others. Now, they were strong in doctrine. They knew the word. They knew that an idol was nothing. They knew they could eat it, but they were weak in love because they didn't care that that though they ate it, it affected the other person, that it offended the other person. They were strong in loving themselves, but weak in loving their brother. As I said, love edifies, it builds up. And the knowledgeable believer, the knowledgeable knowledgeable believer without the edification of love is not as mature as he thinks he is. And Paul said it. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. The unloving fundamentalists are arrogant, but they're not edified. They have the right knowledge, but they don't have the right understanding. And the person who is truly edified has some idea of what what he still needs to learn. Someone has defined knowledge as this. The process of passing from the unconscious state of ignorance to the conscious state of ignorance. 
In other words, the conscious state of ignorance is, you know, the, I don't know that I don't know that I don't know. I don't know that I'm ignorant. But the conscious state of ignorance is, I do know, I do know that I don't know. There's the difference. Ignorance does not does not know that it doesn't know. True knowledge does know. I'm sorry, true knowledge doesn't know and knows it. Look at verse 3 now. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. We ought to be ruled by love rather than knowledge. It's impossible to know God and not love him. Loving God is the most important proof that we have the right relationship to him. And without love for God, which is made possible by his love for us, we can't have the right relationship, uh, the right knowledge of him, because we won't have a right relationship to him. The only one, the only ones who know God and are known by God are those who have a love relationship with him. Jesus said in John 14, verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, that is, obeys them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Knowledge is very important. But like everything else, spiritual gifts, great faith, acts of dedication or sacrifice, miracle working power, they're all nothing without love. Paul said it in what's called the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. Listen to what Paul said. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor, and even sacrificed my body. I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Loving God and being loved by God is everything. So Paul here implies <clears throat> that if God loves a person and that person loves God, he'll also love others whom God loves. Now you can't say I love God and not love God's children. If we truly love God, then we'll also love others whom God loves and died for. John said in 1 John 5, 1, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. Love is the key. Love is the key to the way we behave. Love for others should guide our behavior. And it should, we, you know, when we do something, we should say, in doing this, how's it going to affect the other person? I'm getting ready to say some good. What I'm getting ready to say, how's it going to affect the other person? Though I may be right, and though I may have the right to say it, how's it going to affect the other person? Knowing what is or isn't forbidden isn't enough. When we're looking, looking out for what's, what's best for others and, and not just what's best for ourselves, then we're on the right track to maturity and, and loving Christian behavior. Love tells us how far we can and can't go in our Christian freedom. Look at verse 4. 
Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one. So after you've come to Christ and after you know the word of God, you know, as you come to Christ, you're reading the scriptures, you're growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. And as you're learning, you will learn that an idol is nothing. As Paul said here in verse four, an idol is nothing. That's the way Paul speaks about idols. They are nothing. An idol is nothing more than the creation of man's imagination. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, 20, Paul says idols are demons. They're demons. Paul says there's one God. So he says the meat that was offered to the idol was not affected in any way. Nothing happens to the meat. It doesn't become defiled. You know, setting that meat before an idol <clears throat> and, and, and going through the ritual and, and all that, whatever the idol, idol worshiper does, you know, once they're through and they take away that meat, that meat has not changed one bit from the time they put it there to the time they took it away. It was still good meat. So the knowledgeable Christian could go there to get his meat that is at, you know, at the, at the, uh, the meat market at the temple. They could go there and get it and they could eat it with no problem. Verses 5 and 6. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there's one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, uh, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. Paul says, you know, these, these, these idols were, were just called gods. That's it. They're just called gods. They're not gods. And according to some people, there are many so-called gods and many lords. So the meat was brought to the idol and it was put there for a little while. And then it was taken to the meat market. But again, it did not affect the meat in any way. The idol was nothing, nothing more than the creation of man's imagination. The knowledgeable Christian knew that. He knew there was one God, the Father. He knew that there was one Lord Jesus Christ who made all things. And all things belong to him and we live through him. Verse 7. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. Notice, in other words, not everyone knows that. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So here's the problem. He says, however, not all believers know this. Some are, are, some are still used to thinking of idols as being real. The weak ones, the weak Christians, the, the babes in Christ, the ones who are new believers, the carnal Christians. These were the ones who were offended by the meat offered to idols. They didn't have the knowledge. Their conscience bothered them. That's why they criticized the others who felt free to eat the meat. And you know what? That still happens today. We have people who call themselves separated Christians. And, and, and they think they're being very spiritual. When actually, they're really showing that they don't have the knowledge that they should have. They're, ones, they're the ones who say, oh, you can't do this or you can't do that. They're the ones who, who are offended at Christians who use their Christian liberty. They're like the Christians at Corinth who were offended when they were served meat offered to idols and said, oh, oh, no, we don't touch that meat. 
That kind of separation isn't because one is more spiritual than another. It's due to ignorance, not knowing. And many times in the scriptures, you, you'll hear the Jesus or the apostles, have you not read? Do you not know? And that's usually the problem. They don't know. They haven't read. Maybe they, they, they're not there yet. And now in verse 8, Paul's going to lay down the guideline. Look at verse 8. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. There it is. What we eat or don't eat has nothing to do with our relationship to God. Does not love me any more or any less because I eat meat. Remember when Peter had this problem in the book of Acts? He'd been brought up, Peter had been brought up to consider certain things unclean according to the Mosaic law. Remember when the sheet came down, Peter fell asleep and he was having this vision from heaven. And the Lord said to Peter, Peter, arise and eat. And there are all kinds of crawly, creepy things on, on this sheet. And Peter said, not so, Lord. For I have never eaten anything common, uh, anything common or unclean. Notice Peter said, he calls him Lord. He says, not so, Lord. The Lord meaning master. So he's saying, not so, master. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. So he says, you know, he says, not so, Lord. He says, no, master. He said, and in the same, same, again, in the same breath, he's failing to obey God. He's saying, no, master. He's calling him master. But at the same time, he's saying no to him. And then the Lord said to Peter, and it's Acts chapter 10, verse 15, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. In other words, Peter, God is no longer making the distinction between the clean and the unclean animals. That's history, Peter. That's past. That was law. Now you're under the age of grace. Now we can eat any animal we want to. Not that we should, but we can. Paul has given us a good guideline here. He says, meat does not commend you to God. In other words, eating meat or not eating meat doesn't win you God's approval. You can do as you please in this case. This is the liberty that a believer has. Paul said in Romans 14, verse 17, because the kingdom of God, notice the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You know why eating and, and drinking is not the kingdom of God? Because eating and drinking is something that I do. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm right on with the Lord because I don't eat this or I don't drink that. It's not about what I do or don't do. That brings me into the kingdom of God or the right relationship with God. Paul said, the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what God does. It's not what I do. It's what God does and what he's done. Look at verse 9. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. Paul says, you need to be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. 
Again, all of our liberties have limits. All our liberties have limits. It's not a question of whether eating meat is right or wrong. It's about being concerned for others. How will what I do affect others? You have the freedom to eat the meat if you want to, but what about your concern for others? You have the knowledge, but what about your love? Do you have love for your weaker brother? Are you concerned that what you have the freedom to do, how it might affect them? Verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating an idol, eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? Paul says, will, will they be encouraged to go against their conscience? The reason why many of us who are in ministry don't do certain things or go to certain places is so that we don't offend others. And when you're a leader, you're watched. But this should be the standard for everybody. For example, some people like to dance. It's not an issue of right or wrong. Because, not, it, because it's not a question of knowledge. There are many things that I'm free to do that I don't do. Why? Because it's based on love. I don't want to hurt my weaker brother because of my example. You know, a lot of times we're invited to weddings, birthdays, you know, and there's music and, and there's dancing. Now, what if I, what happened if I got out there on the floor and started to bust a move, you know? <laughs> Mashed potatoes, a twist. I tell you what, tomorrow it's going to be on the internet. It's going to be because they're going to, oh, look, at he's, he's, he's boogieing. There's a pic and it's going to be out. Pastor Joe dancing. And you know what's going to happen? Someone go, I can't believe, man. I can't believe he's dancing. And some are going to get offended and say, you know what? I, I, can't, I can't go to that church. Pastor dances or whatever he might be doing. And, and you know what? That, that could cause him to maybe walk away from Christ. I've offended him. I've, I, I've disappointed him or whatever it might be because I know it happens. And so that's why we have to be careful. And that's, that's everybody. I don't want to be, respo- be responsible for him turning away from the Lord and say, well, what happened to so Well, you know, they, he just doesn't want to come to this church anymore because of something that I did or, you know, again, and, and, it, and it happens. Verse 11. And because of your knowledge, notice, because of the knowledge, because maybe I feel that I can do that and it had not, and not a problem with me. And because of your knowledge, uh, shall the weak brother perish? Notice, for whom Christ died? You see, what we do or don't do is based on a, on a different principle. It's not a question of something right or wrong. It's a question of how will it affect the weaker brother, the weaker neighbor. You see, knowledge, after all, is a very dangerous thing. Verse 12. But when, but when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. There's the other thing. I've offended or I have weakened a brother for whom Christ died. And I always got to remember, that's God's sheep. Those are God's sheep. 
And I'm called to watch over them and to protect them and to help them grow in the grace of God. We are responsible for, when we're responsible for a believer falling away uh, from Jesus, we are affecting Jesus himself. Remember, when God's people are affected, Jesus is affected. And that's a serious offense against Jesus. Verse 13. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Notice, Notice that. But I like doing that. I enjoy doing that. Does it make my brother stumble? Does it stunt his growth in Christ? Does it keep him from growing in Christ? Paul says, I'll never do that if it hurts my brother. If it keeps him from growing. If it keeps him becoming what Jesus Christ has called him to be. If it affects that child of God for whom Jesus Christ died, I'm not going to do that anymore. That's a place we have to come to. Paul says in verse 13, here's the reason for the things we do or don't do. Paul's going to go over this same principle in, in chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10, 23, verse 24, Paul said, we are, we are, we are called, I'm sorry, we we." We are free to do all things, but there are things, he says, which is not wise to do. We are free to do all things, but not all things are for the common good. He said, let a man give attention not only to what is good for himself, but equally to, good, uh, to his neighbor's good. There's no point in arguing about whether something is right or wrong. It's a question of how will it affect a weaker brother or sister. Not a question of knowledge. Paul said, hey, all things are lawful for me. But not all things are expedient. That is, not not everything is good for me. I'm allowed to do anything, but not all things are good for me. See, the Christian's freedom is, is not based on legality. But all things aren't helpful. He's not restricted by rules of conduct. His freedom is limited that is ruled by love. It's ruled by love. And his reason should be, I don't want to do that because I don't want to offend my brother. I want to be a blessing to him. Because you know, if if you've ever experienced offending somebody, they won't receive counsel from you anymore. They won't go to you for Christian counsel. Or the, whether the offense was was legitimate or not. The bottom line, I, I, I can't talk to that person because of, of what they did. Right or wrong. You know, it, that's, that's just the way it's going to be. I want to be a blessing to that person. I want to, you know, if the Lord puts me in that place, help that person to grow in their relationship with Christ. That's how, as a Christian, I decide what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do. That's the motivation for Christian conduct. My knowledge can tell me, hey, it's perfectly all right for me to do something. But my love for the weaker brother will keep me from doing it. 
if it offends him. My freedom in Christ does not mean that anything goes. It means that our salvation is not obtained by, you know, doing good deeds or, or, or being legalistic, or being, uh, obeying legalistic rules. Our salvation is a free gift of God. So in closing, Christian freedom is inseparably married to, to Christian responsibility. New believers are often very sensitive to what's right or wrong. They're growing. They're wanting to know how to please the Lord. They want to know what they should do or shouldn't do. And some things may be perfectly okay for me to do. But it just might hurt a Christian brother or sister who's still new in the Lord. They're still learning what the Christian life is all about. That's why we have to be careful not to offend a sensitive or younger Christian or by our example, cause him or her to sin, even maybe turning away from the Lord. That'd be horrible. When we love others, our freedom should be less important to us than strengthening the faith of a brother or sister in Christ. Father, thank you so much for your wonderful word, God, and the wonderful examples that you've given us, God, the the guidelines, the instruction, Lord. And Father, help us to heed those instructions, God. Help us to follow Christ's pattern. May he be our model, our pattern for life, God. May we imitate him, Lord, and what he says and what he does. And again, Father, this also could go along with what Jesus said. Let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Loving others requires denying ourselves many times, Lord. And it requires doing what's best for others. And sometimes that's giving and giving and giving of ourselves till there's nothing less. Just like Jesus gave, and he gave until there was nothing left. He died upon the cross. He gave it all for his love for me. For all living beings, he gave all that he could on that cross. Father, let us live by that example as well. So, Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word in our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.